0: I'll give you a five minute warning. All right. That sounds good. Perfect. All right. I'll time myself too so I don't give my, I don't do 25 minutes of. All right. You got it? All right. I don't want to give you 25 minutes of what it was like. All right. My name is Dan and I'm a co alcoholic. Thank you, Rob, for asking me to speak. Um, This conference is very special to me. And I know how uh, much work goes into being the Al-Anon co-chair. Uh, I've done that role and um, thank you for your service. So uh, I'll start with some stats. I, um, my serenity date is May 5th, 2008. So I've been uh, attempting to practice these principles in all my affairs for 10 years and I am 37 years old. I was born and raised in Sacramento, two hours up the road. Uh, The suburbs of Sacramento actually, which in the um, early 80s was not as cute as it is now. It was not warm and fuzzy and welcoming to this little gay boy um, who didn't know he was gay. Uh, But uh, it certainly is a nice enough place now to visit. Um, You know, I used to, call it suburban hell but now I just call it home. Uh, I'm the oldest of two. Uh, the mom, my mom's side is uh, Mexican American and uh, my dad's side is white and um, dad's side is the crazy side. That's the side where everybody's an alcoholic, an addict or both and in and out of prison and they tell you exactly what they think of you um, and there's a knockdown, drag out fight usually that's happening when anybody is getting together, and then the next morning, um, you know, we all wake up and we don't talk about it, what happened. Uh, and my mom's side, everybody is very, very nice. They're just nice. It's calm, it's collected, and guess what? We also don't talk about it. There's no, if there's a problem, uh, it just, doesn't get spoken so um, my earliest memory of childhood I think I was about four years old and uh, mom and dad were fighting and I went into the kitchen and the fight was about money and I distinctly remember she was behind me and he was seated and he said Danny get in here and he I got called in, and I was physically standing between the two of them. She was behind me, and he was in front of me. And he said, do you want to do gymnastics or not? And uh, in that moment, um, I'm assuming all of you have heard an AA share because we're at this conference, but... Uh, I will often hear in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that there was a feeling and it went from the top of my head to the bottom of my toes and it came back and hit me in the top of my head again. And in that moment, that's exactly what happened. And uh, what I know now is that that feeling uh, was adrenaline. And I looked at him in the eyes and I said, no, I don't want to do gymnastics. I lied. I lied because I knew that that's what he wanted to hear. Because if I didn't want to do gymnastics, then he would have the money. What I didn't know was that he was going to go use it on drugs. But I knew that from that moment on, my earliest memory, that I could lie to control you and what you thought about me and just to keep the peace in the family. That's my earliest memory. Probably because that adrenaline kicked in so much that it just imprinted on me. So I was about four years old. Um, I'll give you some highlights from there. Uh, My, uh, around eight years old, um, my father was struggling with his own addiction. And um, I didn't realize it at the time, but... He uh, converted himself and then my sister and I. I'm the oldest of two. Uh, he converted himself and the two of us into being Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, um, we are, can be any religion in AA and, and Al-Anon and I have no opinion on outside issues. But what I do know is that in my experience, um, it, religion was used as a cudgel to control me and um, I now understand that my father was likely using extreme religion as a means of trying to manage his own addiction. Um, and so, it was used to get me to not celebrate birthdays. I was yanked out of soccer. I was, um, you know, nominated to be in student government in school, and he made me renounce the uh, the whatever position it was. Uh, you know, as a kid, uh, because I wasn't allowed to do certain things, um, it was highly controlling. Uh, I remember I I was on the cross country and track teams, but I had to keep it a secret in high school. Um, and he he had various jobs, um, but at the toward the end of his life, he was uh, mowing lawns um, because that was easier because he could work for cash and then turn around and um, get what he needed uh, that day. But I remember running with my team when I was, I don't know, 16 years old. And he saw me and I saw him because he was mowing someone's lawn. And I stopped and the whole team stopped and he said, what are you doing? And I said, we're just out for a jog. Um, (laughs) Because I didn't know how to tell the truth. Like, dad, I'm on this team and you know, couldn't tell you because you're too controlling. Um, and so that was like a, a good metaphor for childhood. It, you know, just secrets like with mom's side, we could celebrate and do, you know, I could behave one way. With dad's side, I would be a different way. Um, and there were these paradoxes. It was a very, very confusing time. Um, you know, I'm 14 years old. I went to... Tower Records does everybody remember those? And I <laughs> I was with my friend at the time and I stole a um porno magazine and uh I got caught. And so the it, I was like my heart was beating and they called my mom and she showed up and she was so mad. And she was like <laughs> she was like, "Look," and she pulled out of her purse my report card. I, I was like 14, and she was like, you have straight A's, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and I just remember thinking like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Was I doing it for attention? I don't know, it was just a very confusing time. But I had this need to be perfect, but I also was not seen at all. Um, and I don't know whether this is, um, you know, this is it's not Al-Anon literature, but if you've all heard of like, the hero and the mascot, you know, these, 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 the archetypes of, of growing up in a dysfunctional home. Um, but I was definitely the hero and I quickly learned how to disappear into the wallpaper, just be perfect. That way nobody could have anything on me. And that was definitely how I lived. It was like, I'm going to get straight A 's so that you can't ask me to do anything and that I will feel safe uh, um, so I made it to uh, i escaped and went to college and um, I uh, ran for student government and I won I was like the the as a fall quarter freshman, and yes, I was acting out all sorts of issues but Um, it was like not you know being allowed to do that as a child I finally was relieving myself of the bondage of extreme religion and I came out of the closet and I dated um, several people uh, that liked to drink I don't know if they're alcoholics necessarily because I do any of us know anything about anyone but um, I do know that they liked to drink and more importantly, I found myself working in bars and restaurants so that I could afford to put myself through school, which is what I did. And um, I uh, met somebody who was the uh, director of the LGBT Center, uh, and he would show up at these parties that we would throw, and I would always think, like, oh my god, that's so weird. He's like an older guy. and he shows up at these parties. Like, what is he doing here? And um, but he was my first boyfriend. Was the um, intern at the LGBT center, and so they were close. And so, but I do remember him coming to the parties, and I would always, you know, be play hostess with the mostess, and I would say, "Well, can I get you a drink?" And he would say, "Well, I don't drink. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous." And I'd say, "Oh, yeah, that's right." And he'd remind me over and over and over again. Uh, and but you know it wasn't about me, so I didn't remember. Um, but I uh, didn't end up staying with that boyfriend, and I graduated uh, from school, and he stayed in Sacramento, and then moved to Austin, Texas. And uh, so I wasn't seeing him very much, but whenever he would come into town, he would always like send me a text message or ask to get together. And he said, um, I'm actually speaking at this conference called Living Sober. I'm the Al Anon speaker. This was 2007. And he asked me to come hear him speak. And I said, Oh my God, I, w- I would love to support you. I will come and hear you speak. And he said, Great. And so at this time, it was in the, it was the last year, it was in the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium. And I showed up, uh, you know, way up in the rafters, and I heard him speak. And I, it was fabulous. And I, you know, he had just moved to Austin from Sacramento, and I remember clapping and going, "Oh, that's so great for him." And then I walked out as soon as he was done. And he sent me a text saying, "Thank you so much for coming, um, and you know, come visit us in Austin." He and his uh, husband had, you know, had just moved there, and I said, "Absolutely, I'll, I would love to go visit you." And so the following May, I went on a um, road trip with him from Austin, Texas, to New Orleans for Jazz Fest in, um, in May of 2008. And we saw Stevie Wonder live in concert. It was really wonderful. Uh, and driving back, that's a lot of time to be spending in the car with somebody, like a 12-hour drive. And somewhere over the Louisiana-Texas border, he starts telling me about uh, this 9-step amends that his mother was making to him. And he mentions this parenthetical aside about the only tradition for membership, the only requirement for membership in Al-Anon is to have a friend or family member with the problem of alcoholism, which, you know, anyone who's been around a while knows that that's tradition three in this program. And I said, wait a minute, what? And he quoted it to me again. The only requirement for membership in Al-Anon is to have a friend or family member with the problem of alcoholism. And I said, well, if my dad died of a drug overdose and my stepfather is an alcoholic, and all six of my dad's brothers and sisters are drug addicts, alcoholics, or both, I think I might qualify for Al-Anon. And he was driving and I was in the passenger seat and he looked over at me and said, "Um, yeah, girl, I think you qualify. And for um I was I said, oh my God, and you know the hair stood up on the back of my neck and I just started crying. Because I never I never identified. I didn't think it was for me, you know, like my dad's drug of choice was powders. So it it wasn't booze, like I didn't I was just so literal and um and I said, Well what do I what do I do? I what do I do? And he said, "When you go back to San Francisco, uh, go to a meeting and find somebody. Listen for what it is, for hope, for somebody that's doing it, that's found hope, and somebody that is doing it uh, in a way that inspires you, and ask them to sponsor you. Because in my experience, there's a lot of people who come to Al-Anon and they audit the program, but there's not a lot of people who find recovery." But the ones who do stay, and they find a sponsor, and that sponsor takes them through the steps. And I I heard that, and I said, oh my gosh, uh, I think I know who I'm going to ask. And um, I have so many coincidences in my story, um, because by coincidence, just a couple of months earlier, my aunt, who is my father's sister, Uh, lived at the time in San Francisco, and she had given me um, the phone number of somebody uh, named her neighbor across the street named Jim. And she said, you need to call Jimmy. He knows what you're going through because I had just gotten out of a relationship with somebody uh, and it was the most intense relationship that I had ever been in. Whatever he wanted to do, I would do oh, you want to do that this weekend? Okay, my whole weekend was booked with spending time with him. And um, he had broken up with me, and for 10 months I was spinning out about that relationship. Well, the relationship only lasted for two months, but I was spinning out for 10. And uh, so my aunt was like, you know, hearing me for the second time, still obsessing about why. Why did he break up with me? I'm perfect. Why would he break up with me? And um, she said, you need to call Jimmy. And over the course of several months, I would have Jimmy's phone number on my uh, dresser. And a couple of times in cleaning my room, I would throw it away. And there was some voice inside of me that said, no, just maybe hold on to it. Just maybe hold on to it. And so um, I, this is still before I went on that road trip, I picked it up. I picked it up off the dresser and I had been up until 3 a.m., you know, obsessing the night before. And I was like in enough pain that I called Jimmy. And he answered the phone and he said, "Um, This is Jim. And he told me his last name. What's the problem? And I was like, I didn't, how could you just get to the point like that right away? Oh my God. And so I mumbled through what the problem was and he gave me about 15 seconds and he just interrupted me and said, "Well, how about a little forgiveness for yourself?" And um and suddenly everything was still. No one had ever spoken to me that way before. And he quoted me these steps. This is what I do when I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. And in the fourth step, we do this. And I can't tell you what he told me, but I can tell you that in the previous 10 months, every conversation with all of my close friends and family members, they didn't understand. My obsession didn't stop. But this man, whom I had never met before, was able to calm me down in 15 seconds And he was in these these programs. And so when my uh, friend Solis in the car told me, go back to San Francisco and ask somebody to sponsor you, I knew that I was going to ask Jimmy. And so I got back to San Francisco and I asked Jimmy to sponsor me. And he said, well, I'll meet you at a meeting. And we went to the Monday night 6.15 meeting. And I could barely say my name. My voice was shaking so hard. And um, I was, <laughs> uh, I, well, let me actually, because it's special. Um, I was bopping down Castro Street with a friend of mine, Chuck, who is here today. And he said, oh, my God, there's my sponsor. And I was like, oh, okay. And he said, um, honey, Dan, Dan, honey. And I was like, oh, nice to meet you. And he, he told me his name was Jim, but I could call him honey. And he told me his last name. And I said, excuse me? You're the Jimmy? And, uh, and I told him who I was, and he said, Oh, you're Marla's nephew. Oh, yeah, nice to meet you. Like, no big deal. He just kind of moved on, and I was like, But you're the guy who, you know, in my head, you're, you saved me. And, um, and, uh, and Honey is still my sponsor today. Thank you for being here for staying with me. Um, I dated people that were not appropriate for me after starting this Al-Anon journey. And at seven years of doing this program and sponsoring lots of people over the years, um, I found it necessary to put um, drugs and alcohol into my body, and I made my way into the other programs. I got sober. And it... Uh, was a spiritual experience for me unlike anything I had ever experienced before. And at around eight years in Al-Anon, I was still going to meetings and I was still sponsoring somebody. But I didn't feel like this was my home anymore. I would go to meetings, but I wouldn't share. I would just be quiet. And um, I would talk to my sponsor about it. And he said... "Um, your job right now is to just listen, Dan. And so I I was in these meetings with you, but I wouldn't share, I don't think I shared in an Al-Anon meeting for like nine months. I just didn't feel like I belonged, but I was sponsoring somebody and I just kept going. And and uh, and I, I just didn't, I was like not connecting, not connecting. And then, um, something happened. I started dating somebody, a newcomer in Alcoholics Anonymous. And all of a sudden, I felt like I belonged. (laughs) All of a sudden, it was like, I was like, oh my God, this is, oh my God. Um, Here it is again. And uh, I, the obsession had returned. And, um, I could relate like step one was so very clear, and uh, <laughs> what do I want to say about this? Um, the they're about uh so we're in we're in August now, or September. So back in April, I was st- I, the obsession had returned, and I wasn't be- able to sleep. I was tossing and turning, and tossing and turning. And um, uh, that relationship with the newcomer ended, and I was traumatic for both of us, I think. And he relapsed, and I w- helped him get into the re- a recovery program, and it was it was messy, and um, I. <laughs> I, uh, I'm... I was angry, and I called a longtime member in this program because I was angry at him for abandoning me. Uh, and she said, well, sweetie, it sounds like you need to do a fourth step. And I said, I don't want to do a fucking fourth step, because then it means I'm going to have to get to a fucking forgiveness, and I'm not ready for that. And she very calmly said, well, sweetie, um, why, didn't you just say that you were tossing and turning two nights ago? And I said, yeah. She said, and didn't you just say that that's, there's a connection there because 15 years ago to that night was the anniversary of your father's overdose? And I said, yeah. She said, OK, well, why don't you do the fourth step differently? And I said, what do you mean? She said, um. Why don't you plan a funeral in this fourth step? And I still wasn't getting it. I was like, huh? And she said, well, why don't you write that fourth step out like you're planning a funeral for yourself so that you can let go of the part of you that, wants to, that is addicted to trying to take somebody where they don't want to go? And so I wrote that fourth step out. I said, OK. And I wrote it in a red pen, because I'd never written it in a red pen before, and I, um, it started out as, Dearly Beloved, we are gathered here to celebrate the life of Dan Beeman, and I just, you know, b- bullet-pointed, Dan learned how to behave in his home of origin by disappearing into the wallpaper, by being perfect. Dan learned how to try to control everything around him, and then I got to the part of this relationship, and I... Um, I recognized in the writing out that I didn't want to do after 10 years of doing this work, which was also around my 10 year Elanon anniversary, oh, the solution is still the same. I still need to write this out. I still need to get honest about what is going on with me. And I, when it was written out in pen and paper, I saw that I was still addicted to trying to take somebody where they didn't want to go. And that abandonment that I was angry at him for was actually anger toward myself because I remembered that there was a guy that I abandoned, and he was a professor at school. He wanted to give me the opportunity to publish my work, and I ran away. He wanted to get me into an Ivy League institution, and I ran away. Because here was this older man who was saying, you're smart, you're capable, I want to help you. And all I could see was "Uh, I didn't think I was worthy. So I ran away, I abandoned myself. And I took a, I rented a car and it happened to be on my 37th birthday. And I drove to my old undergraduate institution and I made an amends to that man. And he said, well, um, if you want to do something, uh, I said, what can I do to make this right? And he said, well, first of all, you should know I didn't lose any sleep over this, but. <laughs> which is true. I mean, this is, this, he was like, if you want to do something for you, you can turn something in. And immediately I felt like, okay. And so we worked out what that amends is going to be, and I've been working on it. And from that moment, I have now registered for a class, which I've never been able to do since I left school. I am now registered for a class, and it starts on Tuesday. Is that time? Okay. And it starts on Tuesday. And I am nervous. This is a boot camp. It's a 30 hour a week commitment. But guess what? All the time has been like sponsees have removed themselves from my life. And it's just working out that I'm now it's this is the next step for myself to do this class. And it means I have to slow down my meetings. It means I have to slow down extracurriculars. But it is an amends to myself for abandoning myself and showing me my own self that I have the potential to do this, which is going to help me in my career, help me, you know, perform. And after six months, it'll be over with. Um, and I just want to end with, you know, the obs- <laughs> what I've found in doing this work for 10 years, is that the obsession and the disease doesn't really ever go away, but it can be arrested if I'm willing to do the work. And um, For me lately, as I've told you about the fourth step, and I um, have found my higher power when we are together, um, but particularly that ninth step and going into 10 and 11, I started meditating for the first time in my recovery through this discomfort and sitting with that discomfort has been monumental um, but between the, the 10th and 11th steps so when I wake up in the morning and in, in that 11th step in the morning and then throughout the day if my obsession returns um, there's, a, there's a piece in, the, in Al-Anon original literature which is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous um, it's on page 86 And it's on awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead, we consider our plans for the day. Before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. And under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with assurance, for after all, God gave us brains to use. Our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is cleared of wrong motives. Sometimes the only thing that stops my obsessive thinking is when I ask my God, my higher power, to direct my thinking. Specifically, direct my thinking away from them, whoever they are, whether it's my coworkers. This past three weeks has been crazy at work. Get me out of the business of the outcomes and into the business of what can Dan do to take care of himself. God, direct my thinking so that I am just taking care of myself not into whether my ex is going to stay in his recovery program, not whether if my co-workers can actually do what they're going to say they're going to do, can I do what I say I'm going to do? Can I show up? Can I be the man of my word and actually help change my puzzle piece with my family and my chosen family here today? Um, And then our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane. It's my thought life that gets to change when I do this work. The obsession gets lifted because no longer, I loved what the speaker said last night about when I feel responsible for every, when I wanna take my will back and be God, then suddenly I'm responsible for all of you. That's when my obsession returns. And of course I'm obsessed because I have to control. Okay, Um, but when I can let go, There's so much freedom in that, and I thank all of you for helping me uh, get freedom from the bondage of self. Thank you.